Today's podcast is brought to you by Calvin Theological Seminary. Reformed and globally recognized, the seminary embraces a holistic form of education that attends to the character, spiritual, and vocational formation of students. Since 1876, Calvin Seminary has faithfully prepared leaders who nurture disciples and serve the church. Find the right program for you, including their signature Doctor of Ministry degree at calvinseminary.edu. A person who is transformed, they they cannot help but transform everything around them. So our church was very instrumental in leading movements to get outside of the four walls of the church. The Bible says, let your light so shine so that men may see your good work. People are not going to see the good work that the church is doing in its four walls. Today's conversation is the podcast of the National Association of Evangelicals. I'm your host, Walter Kim, NAE president. We seek to help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. One of our core areas of focus is equipping leaders to proclaim and exemplify the good news in our times. In this conversation, we hear and learn from Pastor James Meeks, who just retired from decades of service as senior pastor of Salem Baptist Church of Chicago. Join us and listen in. Wow, Pastor Meeks, thank you for joining us for this conversation. I am delighted to be a part of this conversation. I really feel that I've made the big time since I am on a podcast with Walter Kim. <laughs> you're just, you're too kind. Well, speaking of big time, I mean, you just went through a big time transition. Last month, you officially retired as senior pastor of a Salem Baptist Church in what looked to be an absolutely amazing celebration with thousands of people um, honoring God, uh, his work in your life, your long and faithful ministry. Um, how does it feel? That's a pretty significant milestone. Well, you know, after 43 years of pastoring, 43 years of preaching every Sunday and every Wednesday, a staff of several hundred people, it uh, feels real strange to have come to the conclusion and after hearing the voice of God to, to let it all go and to yield, and I hope we get a chance to talk about it, to yield to young leadership. Uh, but I am grateful to God to have finished well and to be well when I finish. Mm. Never wanted to finish ministry in a wheelchair, on a cane. I wanted to be able to walk out when my wife and I can still go on a cruise and we both can walk up the ramp. And uh, I think some people stay too long in ministry. I think some people hold on to positions too long. And I think that we fail to give the younger generation a chance. And uh, so, it felt strange, but I received so much love and support from the church until I was so happy that I was not at my funeral mm. and that they were saying all of those nice things and that I was missing them or hearing them from heaven. I was so excited that I was able to sit there and smell the flowers and hear the impact that God has uh, had on people through our lives. And so it, it actually was, was fantastic. 
What, what a blessing that you had the chance to hear that and be able to rejoice in it uh, in many ways to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servants, through some of these words of encouragement of people who've been blessed. Yeah, and I think that it started with these um, moments we were calling Salem moments, and people were saying when they became a part of the ministry. And to hear people say, I came 30 years ago, I came 40 years ago. I remember I was 19 and this is the sermon that you preached. And I remember subsequent series, you know, Satan is very deceptive Mm -hmm. and Satan will cause you to feel that you haven't had much of an impact in ministry or in life. And then God does a lot of that to help keep us humble as well. But to have people remind you of instances that you've long forgot money that I, if I had all of the money that people said I loaned them, uh, I, I'd probably be OK. Money <laughs> that people say that I loaned them, that I've long forgot money that the church has loaned people. And, you know, I was instrumental in helping people in their lives. It, it's just good to know that in your lifetime, God has used you to have an impact on somebody. That was the greatest joy that I received from the retirement accolades. Mm. I'm going to circle back to that of uh, what lessons you've learned. I'm going to draw that out. But I I want to touch on one thing first. Um, During the celebration service, you passed a glass statue of a torch to Pastor Charlie Dates, uh, who succeeds you. And you, you said something like this, I'm almost afraid to hand you this because I know the burden that comes with this role. What were you thinking when you said that? The Bible says to he who much is given, much is required. When Salem started in 1985, there was 193 of, of us. We had no building. We had no sound system. We had no no chairs even to sit in. Just 193 people with a willingness to start a church. Today, Salem um, has a building that's worth $50 million. Uh, It seats 10,000 people and uh, a payroll uh, that's that's real huge. And there are thousands of people. And that's a lot of pressure. And for me to hand that pressure, it it wasn't just I didn't want Charlie to think that you're getting a glass torch. You're getting pressure. You are now getting uh, to be in the enemy's bullseye for an attack. We the reason we see so many evangelical leaders falling and then the world applauding. Because that's what the world wants to do. The world wants to see us fall so that it can applaud and it can point a finger at God somehow by saying to God something that God didn't know. Right. Hey, one of your imperfect creatures is imperfect. (laughs) And so the weight of keeping a life together and a ministry together is a huge responsibility. And so I know that the devil will come after the next leader. And I know what pressure it is to daily, morning by morning, we get new mercies, but we also get new challenges. Mm. And we'll always have enough mercy to go along with those challenges, but those challenges are bigger and bigger. And I know the weight of that challenge. And then not to mention to be live on television, 
twice a week uh, for the last 25 years. I know the, the arrows that way before social media, we were live on TV. And I know the arrows from uh, having to deal with the public who does not agree with the biblical statements you make and the biblical stances you take. And so that is a heavy load to bear. So, Pastor Meeks, you, you've alluded to the, the work of Satan, the kind of the spiritual battle that um, confronts uh, church leadership. You've alluded to kind of the social battles that unfold and, um, you know, arrows, comments that might be made. And then just the weight of uh, seeing uh, a church grow and the responsibilities that come along with that. So, how did you deal with those burdens, whether they're spiritual warfare burdens or burdens of social context? So the first thing that happens when Jesus is 30 years old, he comes on the scene, he is baptized by uh, John the Baptist in the Jordan. First thing that happens. And uh, so he's, he gets spiritually prepared. The, and the Holy Spirit descends on him. The very next thing that happens is that he's driven into the wilderness to be tempted of Satan. Very first thing that happens. And he confronts Satan in every temptation with the word of God. Mm. The only, he, he didn't try to deal with Satan uh, with any other tool than the word of God. And so I have become comfortable in using the tool that he used. And whenever the battles come, whenever the temptations come, there is a scripture somewhere that will answer. And see, that's the mistake that many believers are making. We're trying to answer uh, Satan with human wisdom. Mm. And you can't do it. You only can answer Satan with scripture. Because uh, the Bible says that after Jesus used scripture for the three temptations, that the devil departed from him for a season. He will leave you alone, not long, but a season. He will leave you alone. But the only thing that makes him depart is the word of God. So, so much so until Jesus looked at the 12 and said, will you also leave me in John chapter six? And uh, they said, no, we can't leave. You have the words of eternal life. They, they caught the vision. They understood that the word that he was speaking was the word to defeat enemies and, and, and to overcome obstacles and trials. So I've tried to handle every obstacle and trial, not in human wisdom, but with something that God had said or had promised. So, um, you know, as a pastor, you, you study the word, you have it as a part of your life, you preach it, um, you teach it. But for those who attend your congregations, you know, over the years, how did you encourage people to get the word into their lives? Kind of the everyday Christian that's in the workforce or in the neighborhood or at home. What does it mean for that person to be equipped in the way that you're talking about? People ask me all the time, what's the secret to growing the church from 193 uh, to nine or 10,000? Our secret has been the simplicity of the word. Paul said, I didn't come to you with great wisdom. And the only thing I had was the word. And the only thing that any church really has is the word. God had blessed us at our church to be able to take 
the complicated book called the Bible, to put it into bite-sized pieces so that the common person, where the Bible says, and the common man heard him gladly. That's what we should all be after, that a person, whether degreed or no degreed, young or old, that they understand the essence of the gospel, the message. When people understand the message of the gospel, then they take that message and apply it to their life. Once applied to their lives, then they get a chance to see, hey, this really works. So they come back next week and say, Pastor, I need more word <laughs> so that I can have more application. And mm -hmm. if you and if we teach people application, how to apply the word to what you're going through, they will find out that it's right and that it works. They're not going to abandon that word from hell or high water. Mm. And so I think that the only thing that we had going for us is that we were able to make the make the complicated Bible kind of simple and people applied it to their lives. That's powerful. So share with me, you know, not only some of the burdens that you've shared, but what are some of the joys and perhaps memorable moments in which you've seen the word come alive in a person's life? I've seen the word become alive in a, a young woman's life who had decided that celibacy was something that scriptures taught as opposed to uh, going to clubs looking for a husband. Mm. I've seen the word of God work in a married couple's life uh, so he, here you go. Here's a great story. Uh, there is a, a a young a couple who told me one Sunday that a guy who he comes to church. He had not been to church in 15 years and uh, he came to church this particular Sunday. And uh, the wife says to him, tell the pastor why you are here. He said, Pastor. Last week. She she woke up saying, I'm not going to church Sunday. Uh, I said, why? She said, because the pastor said the word says the husband is the head of the house. I go to church all the time. I want to know today what you want to do. You're the head of the house. I respect that. What do you want to do? So he really couldn't come up with much. But the next Sunday he woke up, hadn't been to church in 15 years and he had a suit on. When she came out of the bedroom, she said, what are you doing? Where are we going? He said, I want to go and see the guy who had enough sense to tell you that I was the head of the house. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God works started, in mysterious ways. He started coming and he had been coming ever since. I cannot give you all the instances that I've seen this word applied to people's lives, but I have. And more, more importantly, sheep make sheep. People ask me, how do you grow a church? It's a life that has been changed that grows or bring other lives. So I'm going to tell you a story and then I'll, I'll, I'll give you an illustration that goes along with it. Uh, I cannot tell you all of the brothers and sisters, siblings who come to our church and said, I saw the change in my oldest sister. My, my sister was mean. That person would say my sister was mean. They carry grudges. They started coming to church 
And all of a sudden, their lives change. I wanted to come and see what changed their lives. I've had coworkers come and say, I want to see what changed my coworkers' life. So here's the story that a, uh, a doctor was coming home, found a, a dog. The dog was lame. Uh, the leg was broke and uh, malnourished. Doctor took the dog home, helped him get his legs healed, helped nourish the, the dog. About a month later, he noticed the dog was missing. And he said to himself, what an ungrateful animal. I mean, I did everything I could. I took care of him. About an hour later, he heard a scratch at the door. And when he went to the door, not only was it that dog, but he had another dog with him that was also lame. Mm -hmm. So the dog had enough sense to know this is where I got healed. This is where I got help. Let me bring another animal back to this place. And maybe this doctor could help him, too. That's what happens with the word of God and with a church. If people are if broken people are being put back together, other broken people notice and then the broken go get another broken person and they bring them back. And that's how a church grows. And it's only through and with the word of God. It's very powerful. I mean, you're talking about the transformational work of Jesus in a person's life and the witness uh, that that bears to those around the kind of the salt and light uh, aspect of, of changed lives. Um, when we think about the gospel, you've already you know, used terms like gospel and, and, and drawn out these incredible stories of, of transformation. So in a, in a recent, in our previous podcast, we had Pastor Derwin Gray on, and he talked about um, a gospel that focuses, it focuses exclusively on individual salvation is, is, is a deformed gospel. In other words, there has to be a sense of transformation, not only in the individual's life, but in a community's life and kind of the common life. And in the work that you have pursued in your own context, um, how, how has that played out? Not just individual transformation, but when a community starts getting transformed and kind of the social implications of the gospel, what, what does that look like? What has that meant for you in your ministry? I heard it asked once, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer was no, I'm my own keeper, but I cannot successfully keep myself without automatically keeping my brother. And so a person who is transformed, they they cannot help but transform everything around them. So our church was very instrumental in leading movements to get outside of the four walls of the church. The Bible says, let your light so shine so that men may see your good work. People are not going to see the good work that the church is doing in its four walls. The church must come outside of the four walls. So one of the first things that we were able to do is <laughs> we were able to put a Bible in every home in our community. So I'm up preaching and I said, we are going to make sure that everybody, every neighborhood around us, everybody in this neighborhood, that they have a Bible. So I announced we are going to put a Bible in every home in this zip code. Nobody told me that we were in the largest zip code in Chicago. I had no I had no knowledge of that. None. I'm just preaching and, you know, casting vision. 
And uh, so we were in the largest gold in Chicago. A lady came up to me after church and said, I, let me show you how God works. She says, I want to help with this project. I have a lot of projects you guys have done. I haven't joined in, but I could help in this project. So I'm looking at her, you know, thinking, well, what can this lady do? Anyway, she comes on, goes on to tell me she's the postmaster for the entire zip code. <laughs> yeah, she had the walking routes and every address of every house in the zip code. And that's what we worked off of to know how many, like 36,000 Bibles we had to purchase. And, but we had, we had to know that because we had to raise the money to get. So, but that endeared us to the community because we actually put a Bible in every home in our community. I've often said to people, you don't have to do every home in your community. You can do every home on the block that the church is in. You can do every home in the four block radius or five block, but the people need to know that you're there and they need to know that you care. We uh, are in a zip code where uh, children, uh, schools were on promotion, uh, on probation because the kids were failing. We took every third grader and every eighth grader and mentored them so that the school could get off of academic probation in order to entice them to come to mentoring on Saturday. We had to offer trips to Disneyland hmm. for the kids that improved the top 20 or something. But the whole neighborhood got involved. We had liquor stores in our community, 21 liquor stores in 19 blocks. We voted the community dry because of what was happening uh, in our community. So when the community sees, we supply all the book bags for kids who are going back to school. We supply food and clothing. We actually put a satellite dish in every prison in the state of Illinois hmm. so that every prisoner in the state of Illinois could see our church service. Hmm. Well, when prisoners got out of prison, they came to church. We led the nation one year in giving away gifts for Angel Tree. Angel Tree was uh, giving gifts to prisoners' kids. We led the nation one year in doing it. So you have to transform the people will transform an environment and transform in a, a community. And it, and it wasn't very difficult to stand up and say to the church, this is what we're getting ready to do. Because you are changed to change. Mm. If you are changed, but there is no change as a result of your change, you may not have been changed. Mm. Wow, that is beautiful, compelling. It combines both the proclamation. I mean, you are literally getting the word of God into people's hands, homes, hearts. Um, but you're manifesting all this creative, spirit-filled action to embody this kind of good news of Jesus in these really creative ways. But I imagine- As um, faith without works. Faith without right. works is dead. Yeah. That it, it is dead. And yet, I want to connect back to the arrows that come your way, the spiritual battle that comes your way. So when you wade into these complicated and complex issues uh, that- you know, royal our country, that royal our culture right now. 
you've sought to navigate this complexity with really strong, bold gospel witness and action. What what advice uh, would you give uh, to churches, to peoples, um, not simply pastors, but those uh, you know who are in our communities seeking to wade into these complicated uh, issues in, in in our culture? What what kind of advice would you give uh, for this creative work of the gospel? Well, the first question to ask is, how many of you want to be like Jesus? And every hand in every room will go up. There will be, I don't care what the conference is, what the church is, what the retreat is, ask how many of you want to be like Jesus, every hand will go up. And then turn around and remind everybody that Jesus didn't die of natural causes. Mm-hmm. Jesus was killed. And the reason he was killed is because he went against the status quo. And I tell people, if you're going against the status quo, we went against the li- we went against the liquor industry uh, to vote uh, our community dry. If you go against the status quo, you have to always be ready for opposition. The Bible did say, "Blessed are ye, if men shall revile you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake." It says, "When." Men should, so it's gonna happen. You have to expect it. Uh, opposition is inevitable, but that's the way to be like Jesus. When you, if you are not having any opposition, and the Bible says it, you know, be careful if everybody's speaking well of you, because that means you all are on the same team. It's just like the church member who says to her pastor, "I've never met the devil," and he said, "That's." That's I understand why, because you guys are traveling in the same direction. Mm. The only way you can meet the devil is you have to be going one way and the devil has to be coming the other way. That's how you that's how you meet. And so opposition is inevitable. And I want everybody who's listening, every church leader who's listening to know that when you face godly opposition, you are in good company for so persecuted. They the prophets which were before you. There is no prophet that we read about. Uh, there's no New Testament personality that we read about who has a, a, a happily ever after. Hmm. The only person we can count on is John on the Isle of Patmos, who died of natural causes, but he was on Patmos. Mm-hmm. So there is no happily ever after. Every disciple of Jesus was killed. The apostle Paul was killed. Uh, the first martyrs in the church. So there is no happily ever after in ministry. Okay, I want to I want to push this. Um, how do you know, Pastor Meeks, when you're facing opposition for godly reasons versus when you are just creating problems for yourself because of your own ill character or because? Uh, you just like conflict. And how do you know you're not being like a King Saul that creates problems for himself or herself because um, you've made poor choices? So opposition isn't always an indicator that you're on God's side. Sometimes it's an indicator that you are not on God's side. But how do you know the difference? Motive. Motive. And uh, only God knows motive and the individual who is involved. I trust my instinct and my motive 
I know that my motive, uh, Paul's, Paul used to call it conscience. I, I'm clear from the conscience of all men. His motive was right. He was doing the right thing for the right reason. And peace becomes the umpire. Edwin Lewis Cole used to say this. Peace is the umpire for doing the will of God. Do you have inward peace? If your motive is wrong, you're not going to have peace. You're going to have inward turmoil. Philippians 1 and 6, I believe, he who has begun a good work in you shall perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. When God, when God starts it, it is a different motive. It's a different motivation. And it's a different level of comfort and peace within you. Even if you're getting opposition, you have the peace of God that passes all understanding to keep you in that instance. But if you have no peace and you're in these fights and battles, and then your own motive, you cannot say that your own motive is pure, then you know that you started something and you got a problem. But uh, when my motive is pure, I have the peace of God, and I know that the opposition is coming from the enemy. We live in this time of uh, transition, and when you passed that uh, glass statue of the torch to Pastor Dates, you were passing along a, a personal call to pastoral ministry, but in some ways, you're also passing along to the next generation, the church. Um, so, as a pastor of a large, historic Black congregation, what is your hope for the coming decades for the Black church? more broadly i i i believe that if left up to me i would continue to pastor but you know the church is not mine the church is god but if left up to me i would continue to pastor uh i i love pastoring i love people i love explaining the word i love teaching i love everything about pastoring and everything that goes along with it what I shudder and what worries me is that we live in a society where everybody ages out without passing a baton. So we have our politicians. These guys are 90 and 95 years old. We send young people to college. We ask them to better themselves, to get an education. Then when they, when they come back to society, we have no place for them because it's being occupied by old kids and, and older people. I, my motivation is my grandchildren. I want them to have a pastor with energy like I had, like I had 40 years ago uh, when we were raising that generation. We raised several generations to get married, to go to, grade school and high school and college, and now they're married and they have children. Uh, I want to see a vibrant children's church, a vibrant youth church. And it takes a pastor with a lot of energy to keep that going. Everybody in the church will usually end up being the age of the pastor. And so if I started the church uh, when I was 28, and that was 38 years ago, then that means everybody has gray hair. Everybody has gray hair. There is no attraction for their. So when we started the church 38 years ago, everybody's hair was black. 
Everybody had toddlers. And uh, so we were able to build life around toddlers, life around teenagers, life around. Well, now everybody has grandchildren. And so and so who's going to win their grandchildren and everybody with grandchildren? We don't have the energy that we had when we were building. And so now it takes another generation with with energy. And look, I don't care how much you can love God uh, more than you've ever loved him before. You can know more scripture than you've ever known before. You're not going to have the energy that you had before. Mm-hmm. You're just not going to have it. And so we need young, vibrant families and children. And the only person that can do that is a young, vibrant pastor to attract them. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I knew it was time for me to step aside. And last but not least, I'm still of age, healthy, vibrant enough to give him advice when he needs advice and to pray for him and to pray for his family and to cover them. And so uh, isn't it just great that all that could happen and I'd be alive Mm. as opposed to had I died? So if, you know, I think the more pastors, more senior pastors should make these choices. And prepare for this day so that we can help the next generation, uh, but not necessarily. God calls young men because they're strong and old men because they dream dreams. You know what? Because we take several naps during the day now. (laughs) (laughs) We need somebody who's awake to be building these churches. You know, uh, Pastor Meeks, one of the beautiful pictures in scripture um, is this passing on of a blessing, but, you know, the uh, older generation laying on hands and and literally passing on a blessing uh, to the next generation as they send them forward. Oftentimes, I conclude a podcast by asking, um, you know, what one thing gives you hope? Um, but I, I, I'd like to invite you to um, kind of metaphorically lay hands on the next generation. And, and would you conclude our time with a prayer of blessing as, as God so impresses upon your heart, uh, how would you wish to bless? And, and would you, in fact, conclude our time by blessing the next generation? Yeah, the first thing I would say to the next generation is that you have a call on your life and that Satan has not left the young generation. As a matter of fact, you know, I started listening to some lyrics of some songs that recently won awards at these award shows. The next generation is being discipled by a group of ungodly people. Mm-hmm. They, they, the lyrics to these songs are so far away from God and so far away from what God wants for the family. And so I say to this next generation, you have to understand Who's discipling your peers? What what music are they listening to? What TV shows are they watching? Uh, What's the the end thing among unbelievers? And then you have to get in there and show a godly perspective. And if the foundation is destroyed, what will the righteous do? We still need a godly foundation in every society and in every generation. I say to the young generation of believers now, stand up. Take your place. Don't wait to be invited to the table of leadership. Just lead. Lead your peers. 
lead your family, uh, lead one friend, step up and lead. Everybody's waiting to, to be given a mantle of leadership. Take a mantle of leadership and step up and lead and step up and lead by saying to the generation, God is here. The society is here. How do we get this society closer? We may not close the total. How do we get it closer to where God is? And God opens doors then. And God will bless you then. And, and, and God will give you platforms and opportunities because draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. God wants people closer to himself than you do. So if you start, God will help you. And, and, and that would be my admonition to the next generation. And now I'll give this prayer. Mm. God, we love you. We bless your name and your truth endureth to all generations. Your truth does not just endure to the apostolic age. Your truth endureth to all generations. And so I pray for young leaders all over the land and country that they would stand up and take their place and lead their society, their generation closer to where you are. And I pray that you would send uh, men and women their way, seasoned saints, to guide them, to nudge them. But God, I pray that your Holy Spirit would do the guiding and do the nudging until such time. So we put this next generation of leaders in your hand Thank you for Walter. Thank you for the NAE and the work that they're doing. And God, continue to use us all for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Our guest on today's conversation has been Pastor James Meeks. I'm Walter Kim. And on behalf of us all, thank you, Pastor Meeks. National Association of Evangelicals is where we use Influence for Good. Today's conversation is one of many ways we help evangelicals foster thriving communities and navigate complexity with biblical clarity. To discover more NAE topics and resources for you and your church, please sign up for our email list and visit our resource hub at nae.org.